kids go at this time, and we just do want to let you know that Alpha is going to be starting this Friday. Alpha is a wonderful course, and all the material has been redone. If you are exploring the Christian faith, maybe you are fairly new to the Christian faith, and you have lots of questions about it. Uh, how do we know that Jesus really rose from the dead? Uh, why is church important? How do we pray? Uh, those are the kinds of things that Alpha addresses. Uh, if you're still searching, maybe you're not a Christian yet, or maybe you have a friend that you think this would be wonderful for, uh, we want to encourage you to invite them out. We have some cards, some invitation cards you can grab at the Welcome Center on your way out if you want to give that to them. It's from 7 to 9 every Friday night here at the church, and there is child care plus youth and children's programs that are happening at the time. And so we just want to invite you all out to Alpha starting this Friday. I just have one other announcement before we start our message today, and that is just a reminder to the elders and to the executive team that we are having a short 10-minute meeting uh, about 10 minutes after the service or so in the boardroom. So just uh, a reminder to all of them. Now, this week I came across a, a very shocking and true story that I read. It's a story of a father-in-law who accidentally got his dead son's wife pregnant. Now, if that doesn't shock you right off the beginning, there's very little that will shock you. Apparently, uh, well, you might be wondering how this uh, accidentally happened. Well, apparently, it turns out that the dead son's wife was working the streets as a prostitute. And the father, not recognizing her, decided to pick up a prostitute for sex and ended up picking up her and slept with her. A few months later, it came to the attention of the father that this woman, the wife of his dead son, was pregnant. And he was livid. Obviously, discovering that his wife's or his son's wife's been sleeping around, he ended up at a family gathering where she was just shaming her in front of the whole family and talking about her immoral living and how she has no respect for her now deceased husband and just shaming her in front of the whole family until finally she pulled out something that he left behind when they had sex together and reveals to the entire family that the child in her womb is actually the child of her father-in-law. I mean, it's kind of an icky story. The fact that this guy could sleep with his daughter-in-law and now be the father and in some sense the grandfather of the child in her womb. And it ended up uh, being that she had twins. Now, when you hear a story like this, you cannot help but think, what kind of messed up world do we live in today that this kind of thing happens? Well, the problem with that sentiment is that this story happened 4,000 years ago. And it's recorded in Genesis chapter 38. Just another story to tell us that the world's always been fairly messed up. What's even more shocking about this story is that the father in the story is Judah, who becomes the father 
or grandfather, great-grandfather of King David and the line that Jesus comes from. And the Bible doesn't cover up this scandal. In fact, the Bible just lays it all out there in full detail for anyone to see. It's interesting how R-rated the Bible is when you have kids and you start having them read the Bible and you start to realize, oh man, especially when you go through books like Genesis and, and Joshua and Judges, you're just like, wow, all of that is in the Bible. The truth is that Humans have always rebelled against God. Ever since the fall, humans have been rebelling against God, and it has significantly messed us up. Particularly, it has messed us up in the area of sexuality. All you have to do is read Rene Tenniehill's book, Sex in History, to discover that. We've always had trouble with this issue and been fairly messed up. In 1991, the Christian band Mad at the World released a sarcastic song entitled, Isn't Sex a Wonderful Thing? Question mark. Uh, the lyrics of that song go, three-letter word, it rules the earth, I've heard. No, it's not love, L-U-V. That's not what I'm thinking of. Husband and wife together all their lives till he chose her instead because she's 18, sexy, and so good in bed. Isn't sex a wonderful thing? Throw away your wedding ring. Isn't sex a wonderful thing? Does anyone care about their purity? Is anyone sure what gender they should be? And does anyone mind that God's been left behind? And here we are today where not too many people can honestly say, isn't sex a wonderful thing? Seems like the human race can ruin anything. Isn't sex a wonderful thing? It's a sad commentary. Now, be careful in recognizing that the band is not questioning whether or not sex is a wonderful thing. It is. What the band is addressing is how the human race can ruin such a wonderful thing. Today we're going to look at a story in John. It comes from John 7, 53 through to chapter 8, verse 11, about a woman caught in adultery. Now, astute individuals that have been following along in this John sermon series may have noticed that I skipped this story, uh, when we went through John chapter 7 and 8. And they also may notice when they look in their Bible that right above this story, it has the words, most of the earliest manuscripts do not have this story in it. Now, personally, I see no reason why this story cannot be authentic to Jesus' ministry. But I do feel that the placement of it here in between John 7 and 8 is unfortunate. And some manuscripts actually have this story after John 21. Some actually put this story in Luke's gospel after chapter 21. And in fact, the story reads more like one of the synoptic gospels rather than the gospel of John. Uh, John 7 and 8 
is a 22-question debate that Jesus is having at the temple. It starts with him entering the temple, and it ends with him leaving the temple. He's questioned over and over again by the crowd, demanding that he reveal his identity. Who do you say that you are? And for 22 questions, they drill him, and they accuse him of demon possession and all kinds of other things. Unfortunately, the weight of this debate between Jesus and the people is missed because of the interruption of this story of the woman caught in adultery. In fact, if you read John 7 and 8 and just take the story out, it reads much smoother. And so many commentators like F.F. Bruce and William Barclay have dealt with this story in an appendix in their commentary. And so what I decided to do is to just allow John 7 and 8 to flow together. And we did those chapters over about three or four weeks. And now that we're done the debate with Jesus in the temple, we will look at this story independently as an independent account. That's why I set it aside for now. So let's go there to John chapter 7, verse 53, and let's read the story. Then the meeting broke up, and everyone went home, and Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again in the temple, and a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap Jesus into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, and so he stood up and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. It's a powerful story. It's almost hard to read without the emotion coming through so powerfully in the end. Throughout history, as we saw in the opening story about Judah, and and in the adultery story that I just read right now, there has been a continual double standard for men and women When it comes to sexual sin. How is it that a movie producer like Harvey Weinstein can get away with sexually assaulting women for so long? For so many people to know about it. And to not say or to do anything for so long. And now as we're seeing in the news because of this, more and more, just heard of the news, the... um, 
I'm not sure the president or the CEO or the producer of Just for Laughs has now been accused of some similar things. We're hearing about it almost on a daily basis. How is it that the president of the United States can be someone who has boasted about grabbing women inappropriately? Men in positions of power seem to always do this. It was modeled to us by other former presidents like Clinton and Kennedy. Former Toronto Mayor Rob Ford, you might remember all the scandal around him as well. Women have been harassed in the workplace, gawked at, touched, patted, called toots, broad, dish, bimbo, chick, made to wear revealing clothes and encouraged to use their sexual charm to advance in society. We hear about rape culture on college campus, or, uh, campuses. Stats Canada reports that one in four North American women will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. And only 3% are proven to be false. Men and women in India have to travel in separate buses because the harassment there towards women is so bad that it's unsafe. There continues to be a global industry of sex tourism and trafficking of underage girls. And this has been going on for generations. In fact, in the 1850s, in Victoria, England, there were 80,000 prostitutes in Victoria, England, for a population of 27 million. Now, just to give you a comparison, today in England, there are 70,000 prostitutes for a population of 66 million, making in that time period, a 96% decrease in prostitution in England. Just for those of you who all think the world's getting worse and worse. It's gone up and down, over and over. In the Victorian era, when it came to sexually transmitted diseases, child prostitution was legal. There were many themed brothels. You could read the advertisement sections in sporting guides and travel guides for the age, physical descriptions, personality, and cost of various prostitutes. And in fact, if you lived in 1850s England, you could buy a virgin girl for five pounds and sleep with her. Classic books like Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, depicting the Puritan culture in 1700s America. Or Leo Tolstoy's resurrection depicting Russian society in the 1800s. Both depict the double standard when it comes to sexual sin between men and women. But few, even in the religious establishments, listen. In fact, there were many times, even in pre-Reformation days, where the church gained many of its uh, profits off of the proceeds of prostitution. 2,200 years ago, or 200 years before Jesus, there was a book written called Susanna. Uh, sometimes this book, it's an uh, apocryphal book written in between the Old Testament writings and the New Testament writings. Sometimes this uh, small little book of Susanna has been added to the end of the book of Daniel. 
that's in our Bible. It's a story about Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel. Well, what the story is, it's about a woman named Susanna who is taking a bath when two elderly men see her and begin lusting after her. And their lust leads them to approach her with insisting uh, that the three of them engage in some kind of illicit threesome. Susanna rejects them, bitter and jealous. However, these two men then later take Susanna and bring her in front of a crowd of people and accuse her of committing adultery. They want her killed, stoned to death. Sounds very similar to the story that Jesus engaged in. They urge the crowd to follow the ancient laws and condemn her to death. And then in the story, Daniel appears. The Daniel that we know of in the Bible. And he senses that something is not right with what these two elderly men are accusing this young lady of. And so what he does is he separates the two men and he questions them both individually and finds out when he separates them and questions them that their stories do not match. And he discovers from all of this and proves to the crowd that she's been falsely condemned and then these two men end up becoming killed for false accusation. This story and the story of that Jesus is involved in here with this woman caught in adultery, in both stories we find men in powerful positions using their authority, using their maleness to get what they want and oppress women. And then toss the women aside when they're no longer any use to them. When we read the story, particularly the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, we can see this at several levels because there are a number of things that are wrong with the story. First off, it takes two to commit adultery. That's an obvious point, and yet in the story, only the woman is brought before Jesus and condemned to death. And if they were so much concerned about following the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law says if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. So you have to ask yourself the question where's the guy in this situation? Why is only the woman brought before? Jesus and the crowd and condemned for committing adultery and trying to get a death sentence put on her. The man being mysteriously absent. The other problem with the story that makes you very suspicious about the guys that brought this woman before Jesus is we read that she was caught in the act. It says it twice in the story. Now, how did the religious leaders catch this woman in the act? I mean, is that something they did on a regular basis? Snoop around and listen outside people's windows and their houses and their bedrooms to try to catch people in the act of sexual adultery? And how did they happen to catch her in the act at the precise moment that Jesus is teaching in the temple so that they can drag her before Jesus? I mean, the timing is a little suspicious. It all 
smells of a setup. And then we read that they were trying to trap Jesus. They weren't actually bringing this woman forward because they actually were concerned with following the Old Testament law. They were not bringing this woman before Jesus because they were actually concerned about the adultery that happened between her and some guy. They brought this woman before Jesus for a totally different motive, and that was to trap Jesus. That was their motive. This is, in fact, the part I find almost the most disturbing about this story. It's the political games that we men can sometimes play and use women in the process. The men have so little regard for this woman that they were ready and willing for her to be killed if in the process somehow they could trap Jesus, which was their real motive. They're playing political power games. Once They get what they want out of the woman. She's tossed aside, no longer any use to them. Even if they trap Jesus in some other way and it does not end up in this woman's death, they've dragged her in front of the crowd. They've humiliated her in front of the community. But who cares? She's just a woman. If somehow we can trap Jesus, it's all worth it. When it comes to sex and power, women are usually the victims. In fact, a book just came out called Cheap Sex by a 2017 book by a a, a great uh, sociologist. This is a a diligent and scholarly and well-researched book. It's put out by Oxford Press. And the book shows how much of our hookup culture... Porn culture, friends with benefits culture, whatever you want to call it, victimizes women. The ones that get most hurt in this kind of culture throughout history and today are women. When it comes to prostitution, it has taken a long time for society to realize that prostitutes almost never willingly choose to go into prostitution because of illicit sexual desires. Prostitutes are victims in which there would be no trade at all if men didn't use them. It's the users, not the prostitutes, who are criminals. They, prostitutes, are usually there because they are Victims of molestation by their fathers or uncles. They've been beaten up by boyfriends. They've been manipulated because of a drug or an alcohol addiction. uh, Or they're trying to cope with their pain. They've been tricked into a better life. And they've been brought from some other country overseas. Sometimes in very tragic situations... Families even sell their own daughters into prostitution so that they as a family can somewhat survive the poverty that they are under. In their book, Casting Stones, Prostitution and Liberation in Asia and the United States, the authors write, the sex industry's commonly visible face 
is one of glamour, pleasure, beauty, and desires, especially as Hollywood and brothel owners and pimps would love to depict this society. And notice how Hollywood brothel owners and pimps are usually run by men. And they want to depict this kind of culture as, as it's beautiful, it's fun, it's glamorous. Hugh Hefner. And yet its hidden face is one of violence, disease, addiction, poverty, despair, and death as social worker after social worker and many former prostitutes and grassroots activists depict it. For me, this image of this woman caught in the act of adultery, exposed before the whole crowd, awaiting Jesus' verdict, is a powerful image of a pornographic culture. It's got power and violence and sex and voyeurism. It's all there. That's porn. Women are degraded, humiliated, slapped around, called names, forced into sex acts, all for the men's pleasure and power. This woman is caught in the act of adultery is the real image of the porn star. Men gawking at her, calling her names like whore, abusing her and just waiting to see the blood flow when the stones start hitting her. Broken and abused, and then she's simply cast aside when the men are finished using her for their own purposes and power trip. But not all men are like that. Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding, these pornographers kept demanding an answer from Jesus. And so Jesus stood up and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. We're not told what Jesus wrote. Many have speculated as to what he wrote particularly because of how quickly the crowd disperses after he does write, I think that what he wrote was something like revealing everyone's internet search history in the sand. And then said, okay, if your internet search history is clean, you can throw the first stone. And then we read in verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman. Then Jesus stood up and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And then Jesus said, neither do I go and sin no more. You know, one of the beautiful things about this passage of Scripture is what we have to realize behind what Jesus said. You see, 
Jesus being a good and just judge, servant of God, is not simply saying to this woman, you know what, this little thing that happened between you and this other guy, I know it was kind of a setup and all that, and I know what happened, let's, let's just cover it all up, don't worry, I don't condemn you, let's just keep it all of a secret, and uh, I'll let you off. It's not what Jesus is doing. A good and just judge doesn't just fudge on the law. That's not good. That's not just. It doesn't ignore the law. Sin does have a price. There is a consequence. And when you understand that, that's where the real power of this story is because you have to ask yourself, how does Jesus have the authority to say, I do not condemn you? The reason is, is because Jesus knows the direction to where his ministry is going. And that is, Jesus knows that his ministry is heading towards a cross. And so the reason that Jesus is able to say to this woman, you are forgiven, I do not condemn you, is because he is essentially saying, I will take the stones. I will be your substitute. I will let you off. I will forgive you because I will die so that you can live. I will take your punishment. I will fulfill the demands of the law so that you can be forgiven. So now go and live a forgiven life. There are a couple of things, there are many that we can take, but there are a couple of things I want to leave you with this morning from this story. And the first is that sexual sin is not unforgivable. The church has disproportionately focused on sexual sin to an absence of focusing on many other sins that the Bible speaks about just as strongly. Sins like what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, when he says that we need to get rid of things like quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. Why don't we focus on those just as much? I have parents that come to me and say, oh, it would just kill me if my, if my kids committed sexual sin. I just don't want my kids to sleep around before they're married. I have rarely had parents come to me and say, oh, I just don't want my kid to grow up and be a quarreler. I just don't want my kid to grow up and be a gossip. Whereas the Bible says it's just as bad. Sometimes even worse. That said, sexual sin does have consequences. And many of the emotional and spiritual consequences of sexual sin are more serious than the physical ones. But God is into redeeming things. That's what he does. And he's into redeeming our sexuality. As Old Testament scholar John Goldengay writes of Jesus' family tree, which we heard a little bit about right at the very beginning of the sermon, he says, Tamar 
is a prostitute or someone who acts like one and perhaps a foreigner. Rahab is a prostitute and presumably a Canaanite. Ruth is a Moabite and a woman whose sexual conduct might also raise an eyebrow. Uriah's wife is named as another man's wife rather than by her own name. And this man is a Hittite. And Mary is an unmarried girl at the time of her pregnancy. And yet all of these women are not only in Jesus' genealogy, but the writer of the Gospels makes sure that he emphasizes that these women are in Jesus' genealogy. From this mess comes Jesus the anointed. I don't know what your sexual history is, but I do know that it can be redeemed and it can be restored and it can be renewed and even be the means of bringing healing and help to other people. The journey of healing is found in finding forgiveness in Jesus Christ and following him as you go and sin no more. And if this is your story and this is your journey, it begins by recognizing that you are forgiven in Jesus Christ. And he can and will empower you to live in sexual wholeness. A lot of times this is going to come with some work. And if you need to talk to someone, you can come and connect with me. And I'd be more than happy to help connect you with a good Christian counselor to begin help you on the journey to sexual healing and wholeness because it can be found in Christ. And women like this do go and live fulfilled, redeemed lives after Jesus has worked with them. And the second thing I want us to take from this story this morning is that Jesus modeled the way that we men are meant to treat women. I am always moved when I read the way that Jesus treated women, particularly in his culture, in his society, in his day. But it rings so true even for our society, for us today as well. How different and how much more respectful was Jesus towards women. We as men are meant to protect and stand up for women, be on the front lines exposing sexual violence, inequality, and injustice towards women. Last night I was at the football game, Lions and, and Eskimos game, and I am so happy to hear and to see that things like this are even being promoted at the football games where you've got in some of the intermissions and in that, you've got football players that are coming up on the big screen and they're speaking out against violence towards women. We need to champion that as a church community. Those are Christian messages. We must speak well of women. We must speak well to women, especially our wives if we're married. How do we speak about our wives? In their presence, in their absence, to other people. And the older must model this. I have to say that sometimes... 
and I'll relate it back to my last church because it's easier to do that. Sometimes when I've gone out with older people from my last church in Edmonton to a restaurant, it was kind of embarrassing. I would be at a restaurant with an older Christian gentleman from the church and we're sitting at the restaurant and he would sort of flirt with the young 18, 19-year-old waitress and sort of call her sort of, you know, hey, toots, can you bring my coffee for me? And hey, and kind of comment. And I'm just like, oh, my word. I can't do that. Notice something when Jesus challenged the crowd and convicted them of their wrong treatment of the woman caught in adultery. We read, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. The oldest in this situation at least had the integrity to model to the younger people there, okay, what we're doing is wrong. And they began to slip away, and the younger recognized it and saw the role model in the older and slipped away as well. The older modeling to the younger what we are doing towards women, the way we are treating women, even if she is a sinner, is wrong. And it's certainly not the way that we as followers of Jesus should ever treat women. You see, the power struggles between men and women were never God's intention. It was never the way God intended things from the beginning of creation. It came because of sin. We read in the Old Testament that when Adam and Eve sinned, God said to Eve, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. What God is saying is that because of sin, what is going to happen? Eve, you represent women. Uh, Adam, you represent man. What's going to happen is for generation after generation, from the beginning of humanity to today, there's been this power struggle where women are trying to regain some of their equality and their control, and men are going to continually oppress them. It's an ugly commentary on history. But... We have a New Testament, and we have a Christ who has come and has redeemed the world. He is bringing his kingdom to earth, and we are already the first fruits of his new kingdom movement, and we, the church, need to begin to bring, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. We are to begin the movement of his kingdom on earth, his restored kingdom on earth. And that restored kingdom on earth is described like this in the New Testament. Now, because of what Christ has done, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see what Christ has done? He's taken away the curse. The book of Revelation says in the new kingdom, there is no longer a curse. And that involves the curse of the power struggles between men and women. In Christ's kingdom, you're all one. In Christ Jesus. We come to the table when we receive communion as one. Equal. 
the way God intended. He created us male and female in God's image. We as a church, we're not there yet in Christ's kingdom come in its full. But we as the church are to begin to live those kingdom principles. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that your message of redemption, we pray, God, that we will understand that message and we who have become broken people, broken in our own areas of sexuality, Lord, we pray that we can come and find salvation in you in the broken sexuality of our lives so that we can live restored lives where we can live free of sin so we can go and sin no more and know what it means to be fully human. And we also pray, God, an understanding that your gospel redemption message also means the restoration between the equality between men and women. And we pray, God, that in the way that we speak to one another, treat one another, protect one another, speak well of one another, work together, that in all things, God, we can break down the walls of sin that separate the harmony between the sexes. And we can treat each other as Jesus treats us. As creatures specially made in God's image. May we love each other like that. In Jesus' name.